I thank God for all who have led us in worship today. We are continuing a sermon series called Give Me Jesus. Of course, when we pray that, we have to realize that sometimes Jesus will come with a challenge. And that's what we find in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 30. I'll be reading from the New Revised Standard Version. And the title of the sermon is Blurring the Boundaries of God's Favored People. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, Is not this Joseph's son? He said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, Do here also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. And he said, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a severe famine all over the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Zarephath and Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of the town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. Let us pray. Lord God, in this preaching moment, I simply ask that you would help me to speak your word. Help them to hear your word. And Lord, help us all to do your word. I pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. On this holy day of Pentecost, as we think of the Holy Spirit, we recall that Jesus was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. And as he grew and was baptized, the Holy Spirit alighted upon him. The Spirit also led him into the wilderness to face temptation. And Luke says the Spirit empowered him as he returned to Galilee. And so we shouldn't be surprised that as he stood before his hometown synagogue in Nazareth, he chose to read from the prophet Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, 
to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. When he finished reading, he proclaimed, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What a sermon, the people said. He's so polished, they said. He kept it short and sweet, they said. Yeah, and he preaches the Bible, too. And isn't this Joseph's son? Sure is. I had him in first grade. Oh, yeah, I used to live next door. He's really made something of himself. Sure has a fine young man. Everybody loves the message and the messenger. So far, the congregation is admiring and appreciative. So far... Jesus is basking in the glow of profuse acclamation. So far, if only he had stopped there. There is a kind of sermon that says more than the people want to hear. There is a kind of sermon that starts out copacetic, but ends up rubbing people the wrong way. There is a kind of sermon that destabilizes discomforts and disrupts the listeners. If only Jesus had wrapped up his message when he had the congregation in the palm of his hand. <laughs> Instead, he went on, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, do here also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. Jesus is provoking the congregation. He's stirring the pot. He's making trouble right there in the pulpit. Does he not know that people have enough trouble in everyday life and just need some comfort when they come to worship? Does he not know the congregation's financial giving might decline if they're upset with the preaching? Does he not know the preacher's job is to keep everybody as happy as possible and not to throw any theological or ethical curveballs that create a fuss? The deacons and the church council and the elder board would rather him stick to the conventional script. You know, a funny intro, a standard interpretation of scripture, a cute story, maybe a poem, then say amen and let the people go to lunch. Yet Jesus' teaching is not designed to be palatable, but prophetic. His preaching is not intended to be tepid, but transformative. He's not cautious in the pulpit, but daring. He's not placid, but provocative. To preach like Jesus, therefore entails upsetting the congregation. Not every Sunday, but at least every now and then. Christ-like preaching unsettles, confronts, and challenges. If nothing I say in this pulpit ever makes you bristle, if nothing I say in this pulpit ever makes you question your assumptions about Scripture, if nothing I say in this pulpit ever makes you upset or uncomfortable, you can be sure I am not preaching like Jesus. The point is not to be controversial, but to tell the truth. 
The truth is, Jesus continued, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. He's referring to an Old Testament story in 1 Kings chapter 17 when God sent the prophet Elijah to serve and save a Gentile woman during a time of famine. Jesus adds, there were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Again, he's referring to an Old Testament story. This time in 2 Kings chapter 5, when God sent the prophet Elisha to heal a Gentile military leader from leprosy. The common denominator in both stories Jesus lifts up is that God's prophet reached out to bless Gentiles. This is noteworthy because Gentiles and Jewish folks were rivals in New Testament times. According to classical scholar Louis Feldman, the Gentile masses resented Jews for their wealth and privileged status. Gentiles also regarded Jews as unpatriotic because they refused to worship the gods of the Roman Empire. Conversely, popular prejudice against Jews served to reinforce cohesion in Jewish communities and the loyalty of Jews to one another provoked the charge that they hated every other people. Thus, widespread antagonism and various social conflicts characterized relations between Jews and Gentiles. Amid all this, Jesus emphasizes to his own Jewish community that God intentionally blesses Gentiles. No wonder they went from impressed to irate. No wonder they went from admiration to infuriation. They were so enraged, in fact, that they tried to throw Jesus off a cliff. Jesus had riled them by blurring the boundaries of God's favored people. The tidy lines of demarcation that distinguished the chosen from the unchosen, the holy from the unholy, the godly from the godless, the favored from the unfavored were blurred like a line in the sand when the tide comes in. The people that God's people said were not God's people, turned out to be God's people too. Jesus' hometown sermon overthrew all notions of theological nepotism by conveying that God specifically reaches out for people of different races, ethnicities, nations, cultures, and backgrounds. Jesus signaled that his mission mirrored that of Elijah and Elisha in that he was sent to outsiders to make them insiders, sent to the excluded to make them included, sent to those presumed to be distant from God to show that God is actually drawing near to them with grace. Not only the poor, the captives, the blind, and the oppressed, but also the Gentiles, the unclean, the pagans, and the heathens, are all offered divine 
grace. As Jesus proclaimed God's favor to outsiders, he undercut all presumptions of spiritual superiority, ethnic privilege, and theological favoritism. Jesus did all this by the book, or at least by the scroll. The people were scandalized by their own scriptures. It reminds me of Pastor Amy Butler, who read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount as her sermon one Sunday. To be clear, she did not interpret the Sermon on the Mount. She simply read two chapters of it from Matthew's Gospel as her Sunday sermon. In coffee hour after worship, she reports, several people came up to her to tell her they did not like or agree with parts of her sermon. Modern day Christians are sometimes scandalized by our own scriptures, especially scriptures that flout our tribalistic tendencies and confound our rigid us-versus-them dichotomies. In particular, scriptures that recount the preaching and ministry of Christ will not allow us to draw definitive boundary lines that include ourselves within the righteous and exclude others as sinners, that place ourselves inside God's people and locate others outside God's people, that encompass ourselves within the circle of divine mercy and cast others outside the ring of grace. Christians cannot claim favored status because Jesus' teaching causes us to question who's in and who's out. In his teaching, both the sheep and the goats are surprised on judgment day. A sinful tax collector goes home justified, while a supremely religious person does not. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Yet blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Jesus is always pulling the rug out from under our typical assumptions. As Yale theologian Willie James Jennings says, Jesus is not only the answer to our questions, he's also the question to our answers. Jesus specifically questions our penchant for tribalism the primal practice of dividing into rivalrous social groups. It's not difficult to see how this happens. Individuals with competing aims form groups with competing aims, such as blue-collar workers and professionals, adolescents and senior citizens, recent immigrants and long-standing residents, white folks and black folks. Each group works on behalf of its own survival and well-being, resulting in potential conflicts such as classism, ageism, racism, and more. As psychologist Jonathan Haid writes, human nature is groupish, meaning we are adept at promoting our group's interests in competition with other groups. This tendency toward tribalism 
is only intensifying of late as people contentiously divide into the right and the left, the north and the south, the urban and the rural, and so on. While group solidarity has legitimate benefits, it also tempts us to contend with others as adversaries rather than loving others as neighbors. Lamentably, the othering of various groups has been a proclivity of God's people throughout the centuries. Christ seeks to rectify this sinful propensity by blurring the boundaries between social groups to demonstrate God's love for the entire world. He blurred the boundaries when he befriended a Samaritan woman at the well. He blurred the boundaries when he came to the aid of a Gentile centurion. He blurred the boundaries when he healed the daughter of a Canaanite woman. The God revealed in Christ is not a tribal deity, but the God of every tribe, nation, and tongue. The God revealed in Christ is impartial, unbiased, and nonpartisan. The God revealed in Christ does not play favorites. Indeed, Christ shows that the endless us-versus-them dichotomies we so avidly construct do not determine who's in and out of God's kingdom because God's favor is not reserved for certain groups. We like to set boundaries by finding our tribe and distancing our group from others. This makes us feel safer and makes us feel superior. We like to draw lines defining our good group over against other not-as-good groups. Earthly leaders seeking to energize certain demographics can further ensconce the us-versus-them mentality into the fabric of societies. Yet despite patterns of division, polarization, and tribalism which seem to be becoming trendy, Christ insists that God's favor is offered to all. He does not see things from a typical human vantage point. Christ has a higher perspective, a transcendent point of view. It reminds me of a phenomenon called the overview effect. The overview effect describes the profound transformation many astronauts undergo upon viewing the Earth from outer space. Psychologist Adam Grant writes, when you get to see an overview of the Earth from outer space, you realize you share a common identity with all human beings. For example, astronaut Jeff Ashby says, you can easily from space, see the connection between someone on one side of the planet to someone on the other. And there are no borders evident. So it appears as just this one common layer that we all exist in. Author Jeffrey Kluger tells the story of the Apollo 8 crew, who in 1968 became the first human beings to travel far enough away from the Earth to view it in full. Astronaut Frank Borman famously exclaimed from the cockpit, What a view! 
Later, he revealed that he was actually thinking, this must be what God sees. Although God's vantage point transcends that of astronauts, the overview effect is akin to the perspective that Jesus exemplifies. He sees all people from high above where no boundaries are evident among us, where all peoples of earth are beneficiaries of God's unmerited benevolence. Although Christ recognizes the distinctions that make us beautifully diverse and takes account of the advantages and disadvantages that different groups have, he insists that no group is God's favorite, nor is any group ineligible for God's grace. His lesson in the synagogue is that even the godless are God's beloved. That no man-made boundaries can circumscribe divine grace. And that God's love extends to all people, even those people on the other side. This is not to say that every group is equally right or equally righteous. Nor is it to say there's never a time to take a side. It is rather to clarify that no social group can claim God as their own or claim a copyright on the gospel or claim Christ as their mascot. It is also to clarify that loyalty to one's group is not the same as loyalty to God. Indeed, sometimes group loyalty and God loyalty are at odds. This message of God's universal grace, this message of God's impartiality is objectionable within tribalistic contexts. It can even arouse hostile opposition as Christ experienced at the synagogue. Somehow he managed to sidestep the mob that day, slipping right through their fingers. But he did not evade the mob that later condemned him to the cross. Instead, he died there. He died on the cross for Jews and Gentiles, all of whom he loved. He died on the cross for the chosen and the unchosen, all of whom he came to save. He died on the cross for the holy and the unholy, all of whom he offered Grace. He died on the cross for the left and the right, the north and the south, the urban and the rural, the blue-collar and the professional, the clean and the unclean, the adolescents and the senior citizens, the rich and the poor, the recent immigrants and long-standing residents, the prisoners and the free persons, the religious and the irreligious. He had an elevated vantage point as he perished, lifted high on a cross on a hill outside Jerusalem. He had a certain overview of humanity, and when he looked down, he saw no borders among the peoples. He saw no boundaries separating the favored from the unfavored in his preaching, his ministry, and in his death. Christ blurred the boundaries of God's favored people until we could no longer see them. By his inspiration, we can see a world without boundaries, a world without dividing lines, 
a world of beautifully diverse neighbors for us to love, to bless, and to serve. Amen.